Welcome to Community Conversations with Blood Advances. We're delighted uh, to be here today. My name is Dr. Margaret Ragney. I'm an associate editor at Blood Advances, and we are looking forward to this opportunity to talk with one of our authors, really to get a chance to hear about his work. It allows us to go beyond the article and to hear a little more about the thought process behind it and as well the author. So uh, what we hope to do is just in the next five to ten minutes talk a little bit about the article for this podcast. But first, I'd like to welcome Dr. Don Arnold from McMaster, whose paper uh, we will be discussing. Welcome, Dr. Arnold. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, you know, you had a most interesting article recently in Blood Advances, and I believe it was called The Misdiagnosis of Primary ITP and the Frequency of Bleeding and Lessons from the McMaster Registry. So, you know, this was a very interesting paper, and I wondered if you could maybe talk with us a little bit about what the reasons are that ITP may be misdiagnosed and maybe tell us a little bit about how you decided to study this. Sure. Um, well, I'll, I'll start by telling you a little bit about myself. I'm an associate professor at McMaster University in Ontario, Canada. Um, I have a focus uh, of my research career on immune-mediated platelet disorders and ITP in general, and um, transfusion medicine research kind of as a global theme. In fact, um, I'm proud to be the director of the McMaster Center for Transfusion Research. And one of our uh, areas of interest in particular is ITP, mostly because ITP is still a fairly unknown disease in that it's been around for a long time, but we don't have a very good sense of its pathophysiology or the mechanisms uh, behind it. And um, clinically, when I see patients uh, with this disorder, it can end up being quite confusing, even starting with some of the most fundamental aspects like making the diagnosis. And so when this became clear to me um, almost a decade ago, uh, I and others from our team had the um, desire and inclination to start to study this in a systematic way. And we figured the best way to do this would be in a, a longitudinal registry where patients who are referred to the clinic um, are invited to participate. They sign a consent form allowing us to collect longitudinal clinical data and also um, patient materials like blood samples, um, DNA samples, et cetera, so that we could create and grow a, a biobank of uh, materials to really address some of the fundamental aspects around uh, pathophysiology and linking that to diagnosis. So you underscore a very critical issue in clinical translational research, and that's having a really excellent, outstanding database. I think one of the things we were very interested in was in which patients do we see that this misdiagnosis may occur. I think you had found up to one in seven patients were misdiagnosed. So when does this happen? Why does it happen? Right. Well, if you think about the criteria uh, used to define uh, immune thrombocytopenia or primary ITP, it is a platelet count less than 100. And, and that definition was um, devised by essentially a group of experts that came together and 
decided that that's the best that we've got. And if you think about that definition for a minute, it is um, it is very unhelpful uh, as clinicians and even as patients um, trying to hone in on the diagnosis based on that very non-specific criterion. So as as people have said for for many years, ITP still remains a diagnosis of exclusion, which means that if someone does meet that criterion of a platelet count less than 100, a whole bunch of other things need to happen to rule out anything else. So a, a battery of tests, um, a good history and physical exam to try to uncover is there anything else that could be causing this low platelet count. And so to answer your question about who is it that uh, we're ending up misdiagnosed, um, these were patients who did not have anything obvious when they first came to the clinic, but on deeper investigations and further testing, we were able to uncover um, things that were were in the background, perhaps occult, but still important uh, to contribute to their underlying diagnosis. Those would be, for example, patients with myelodysplastic syndrome who ended up having a bone marrow test done that showed dysplastic changes, or after some investigations, um, patients had ultrasounds that showed a big spleen or an abnormal liver and ended up with more of a diagnosis of, of liver disease, for example. So would that change your approach if you were trying to uh, make a more accurate diagnosis? Because bone marrow aspirates and biopsies are traditionally not done when it seems to be a diagnosis of exclusion. Right. How does this change your approach? Um, I think the most important point really is that it gives a broader um, appreciation that a lot of things that we may be calling ITP either might not be or perhaps our definition of ITP is not as accurate as it as it ought to be. So what I mean by that is um, patients with ITP might have a variety of different syndromes that all look the same but actually um, have different mechanisms to them. So it's hard to say that that um, this would change the approach that we're currently using or that are that is currently outlined in guidelines in terms of making the diagnosis. But I do think that it raises the awareness that oftentimes um, we may not be right in, in the diagnosis that we end up making. And I don't think the message should be that we should be doing more bone marrow aspirates and biopsies on patients like this or that we need to be uniformly or, or universally investigating everyone with imaging studies. But it does mean that we have to take a close look at the patients who fit the bill for the conventional criteria for ITP and really look hard to say, maybe this person doesn't have what we think they have, and those are the ones where we need to go looking a little deeper. So might I ask, in your practice, um, are you routinely looking very closely at each ITP patient you see, or is there a subset that you think might be more likely to be diagnosed, misdiagnosed, sorry? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I mean, I, I guess I have the luxury of working in a center, um, an academic
academic center where we're doing a lot of research, including um, the ongoing uh, ITP registry that's closely linked to our clinic. So for the patients who are enrolled in my clinic with thrombocytopenia and look like they may have ITP, almost all of them would end up in the registry and automatically get a fairly large panel of testing done. Um, I don't think that's wrong in terms of a clinical practice, but until we have enough information to say uh, we should do a large panel of tests and additional investigations, I'm, I'm just not, I don't think we're ready to um, use that as a guideline, for example, for all patients. Um, but I, but um, to answer the question about who would be most likely to be missed, um, maybe the easier way of, of me approaching that is who are the ones that are most likely to really be the true ITP patients? Well, the, we've learned from this and some other studies that there are a few features that do stand out in, in patients who really have kind of the true form of ITP, and those are a platelet count that's severely low. So a platelet count less than 20, for example, is often related to an immune condition, and that's either primary ITP or perhaps a secondary form. Um, another feature which is helpful but only helpful retrospectively is how well did they respond to typical immune-based therapies like high-dose corticosteroids or high-dose intravenous immune globulin. If you see a robust platelet count response to IVIG, that's fairly compelling evidence that that person has ITP or either primary or secondary form. That's very helpful. I wonder if you could comment on what you think future uh, translational research might uh, entail in this area or what your future goals are in ITP and its diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Well, when I think about um, the patients that that I see in clinic on a weekly basis, um, the ones that are the toughest to sort out are the ones that have maybe a mild or less severe thrombocytopenia and have never require, required therapy, um, don't have any other obvious abnormalities in in their other blood lineages or, or, or other um, features in their medical history that would point to a specific cause. Um, and as a group, those and even the more severe ones, I think really what what would help us is if we had some measure, some way of making a diagnosis that was related to their underlying mechanisms. So I'm coming back to this concept that I think ITP is probably more than one disease. Perhaps it's three or four or five, and one may be an antibody-mediated illness, Another one might be a T-cell-mediated illness. Another one may be complement and then perhaps other mechanisms, all with a final common endpoint of thrombocytopenia and all looking quite similar. So from a translational research point of view, I think it would be really important for us to almost go back to basics and, and upstream of what we're seeing clinically and figure out if there are mechanisms that we could target that would help us to underline which type of ITP this patient has. And if it's none, then perhaps they don't have ITP at all and we would look more for a, um, a, a non-immune cause. 
Well, this is great. You know, we look forward to more exciting things coming from your studies. Uh, what a great registry. And I would like to personally thank you for such a clear, uh, concise uh, discussion of your topic uh, and your paper. Thanks so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Blood Advances Community Conversations. Visit bloodadvances.org to listen to more author interviews and to subscribe to the Community Conversations podcast. Music for the Blood Advances Community Conversations was performed by the Art Topolo Trio and provided by Dr. Art Topolo. This presentation is copyrighted by the American Society of Hematology. We thank you for listening.